You're a busy provider trying to stay current with the latest HIV testing, prevention, and treatment guidelines, and your pockets are overflowing with note cards. You need a convenient, trustworthy source for HIV testing, treatment, prevention, and care protocols. All healthcare professionals have a role in stopping HIV. Introducing HIV Care Tools from the AIDS Education and Training Center program. The HIV Care Tools mobile app is simple, free, and fully functional offline or online. It features quick guides for HIV prevention, screening, testing, diagnosis, and treatment. HIV Care Tools provides common clinical calculators used in HIV management and provide validated screening tools for comorbidities such as depression, substance use disorders, and PTSD. And if you need clinician-to-clinician consultation, HIV Care Tools provides one-touch access to free clinical consultation services by a multidisciplinary team of experts. Take us with you. Download HIV Care Tools today. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Breitman. Today, we're sitting down with Claude Ann Mellons, Professor of Medical Psychology, Co-Director of the HIV Center for Clinical and Behavioral Studies, and Co-Founder and Program Director of COPE Columbia, the focus of our podcast today. And with Bob Remian, Professor of Clinical Medical Psychology, Director of the HIV Center for Clinical and Behavioral Studies, Clinical Director for Behavioral Health in our NICA AATC, and Area Leader in our Division of Gender, Sexuality, and Health. They're both here to talk about their work in this peer support well-being program at Columbia University. So thanks so much for coming on, Claude and Bob. Thanks for having us, Mariana. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, thank you, Mariana. So Claude, first and foremost, for those who might not be familiar, what exactly is COPE Columbia? So thank you for giving us the opportunity to talk about this. You know, I think as you know, and, and as most people listening know, COVID-19 has really had an unprecedented international public health impact on all of us. It's put substantial burden on medical centers and universities. It's increased the psychological toll on all, but particularly healthcare workers. And we know from studies of other pandemics or traumatic events or disasters, such as you know, September 11th attacks, that the psychological footprint of all of these events is likely to exceed the medical one or, or physical one, particularly for those who are on the front line but actually for everyone. So it was in this context that uh, partnering with Columbia doctors, a number of us in the psychiatry department, um, two psychiatrists, Lou Baptista and Laurel Mayer and myself um, founded COPE Columbia. And then we quickly, quickly brought in about 10 others from our department to help us create this peer support program that has the mission to foster collective well-being, mental health and resilience at our medical center through a number of mechanisms that focus on sharing evidence-based coping strategies, facilitating access to peer support and mental health resources, um, and then really trying to contribute to an inclusive and compassionate culture. And um, Bob Ramian is one of the psychologists that we also brought in. Can you tell folks a little bit about the kinds of resources that you've been able to offer? Yeah, sure. So first in, in developing the program, we knew that we would um, really need the help of really diverse faculty in our department, that we would need to really be thinking about mental health, trauma, grief and loss, 
stress and anxiety and really evidence-based treatments. Um, and, you know, we had learned a lot from other pandemics such as HIV that, you know, uh, Bob can actually talk about more later. Um, so together, you know, we knew this was not going to be easy. There's tremendous stigma about mental health and being vulnerable. So we thought it would be most effective for us to come in as peers with an ability to translate all our knowledge of evidence-based mental health practice into everyday language. So we created a range of programs with a very simple peer support model, right? Provide some psychoeducation on all of those topics I just gave you, like trauma and loss and grief and anxiety provide the space for people to express what's been challenging and stressful, and then to really label those experiences and feelings, validate and normalize their emotions, and help them identify coping strategies and ways to promote well-being, including you know, helping them ground themselves in the present, engage in self-care, recommit to their values, and reach out to their support systems. In some ways, that's the most important. And we did this through relatively brief individual or group peer support sessions. They were confidential. We didn't bill, we didn't take notes. Um, but I will say about a third of those individual sessions actually ended up with referrals for mental health treatment, which is a great thing, you know, that we can provide that kind of support. And then we also have town halls and webinars on topics related to stress, trauma, grief, resilience, or coping. And then lastly, we created a website with resources for people who may not have the time to join our programs, but really could benefit. And things like guided meditation, mindfulness, yoga, articles on grief and loss, reducing stress, um, parenting. You know, I'll also add here, I think it's important to note that COVID was not the only challenge we were facing in 2020 and 2021. There was also the multitude of racial and social injustices brought to the world's attention, most notably the murder of George Floyd in the hands of the police, contributing to the advancement of the very important um, Black Lives Matter movement. So relatedly, the COVID pandemic further revealed the tremendous health disparities that we face in our country with Black and Brown communities suffering the highest burden and then we also had the contentious and divisive federal election, which also highlighted the politicization of COVID, um, politicizing protections, including mask wearing and vaccination. This all led to additional special programming taken up by COPE Columbia with the recognition that people needed support around these topics as well. Um, specific examples of guidelines that COPE Columbia developed, uh, our team developed included election stress, holiday stress, facilitation of conversations about racial and social injustice, and more recently, uh, uh, about transition back to in-person work. So you both have been working with Nika ATC on a number of HIV and COVID-19 projects over the past couple of years. And as I understand it, these projects focus on the importance of mental health and integrating it with healthcare systems. Were there important lessons from HIV or similarities between HIV and COVID-19 that helped you with this work? It's a good question, Mariana. Thank you for asking that. You know, well, obviously these are both infectious diseases that led to novel pandemics at their outset. And there was a lot of confusion and early misunderstandings um, in both cases, how the virus is transmitted, 
the range of risk factors that are associated with viral transmission and what's not associated with viral transmission. Um, the early days of both of the pandemics were associated with a lot of fear, anxiety, uncertainty, shame, and secrecy, and a lot of isolation, um, particularly of the people first affected, um, as well as their healthcare providers in both cases. And in the beginning of both pandemics, there was a lack of effective treatments and a lot of disease, illness, death, dying. And there were many communities experiencing multiple loss with, within their families and within neighborhoods. Hospitals, funeral homes, morgues were overwhelmed in certain cities and certain neighborhoods in particular. And there was accompanying economic and emotional toll in these communities. And unfortunately, illness, death, and loss remain a part of both of these pandemics. All that we learned in terms of community mobilization and the provision of psychological support for coping with HIV AIDS was relevant to helping individuals and families coping with COVID today. For other organizations that are working to keep up with the, you know, constantly changing updates on COVID-19, do you have some top lessons learned for how best to help staff cope, you know, not only with their patient care demands, but also with their personal reactions to the pandemic? That's such a great question. You know, I think we learned so much during this time. And I think in some ways, the most important thing we learned is that there's not one type of response. You know, there isn't a one size fits all model that people really experienced a range of things during this pandemic. So we heard a lot about, um, and this still continues, right? About uncertainty. Um, you know, when is this gonna end? Um, how effective is the vaccine? How effective are masks? You know, all the things that everybody are so worried about have, that's been true throughout and we haven't really gotten any relief from that. Fear of getting sick. Um, concerns about transitioning back to work or the in-person, you know, being in the office and juggling um, parenting um, or other caregiving responsibilities that people have um, or combating exhaustion and fatigue for frontline workers, you know, who have just been doing more and more and more. Um, concerns about financial security for people who, you know, out there who lost jobs or work home balance. Um, or the things that, you know, Bob was describing around political climate, racial and social injustice. Um, and so, you know, all of that kind of leads to, for some people, I think most of us had an impact, right? Most of us have experienced some stress from that, but it may be minimal stress. Um, and for many others, it leads to a heightened feeling of distress um, that will require some support and some help with coping, um, maybe some uh, mental health support treatment as well. Um, and then, you know, for a smaller range of people, mental health disorders. And I, you know, I think what we've learned is that the majority of people are really resilient and will come through this, but, but others really will have distress and we need to pay attention to it. Um, and so to do that, I think we have to address the stigma of mental health treatment. Um, and we have to help people to really see asking for help as a strength, not a weakness. Um, and, and recognize, you know, people need breaks and they need vacations and they need rest. Um, we're not, you know, all worker bees that can keep going until we fizzle out, although sometimes it feels like that. So we've been trying to create spaces to encourage that, you know, to get more communication out there. Um, and then there's some really 
simple things um, that we don't do nearly enough, which is, you know, um, expressing gratitude and appreciation and thinking about what's been helpful out there to others. And these are really critical for team building um, and for getting social support to everyone. Uh, you know, I, I think that one other area I will bring up is that we've also started in COPE Columbia to work with leadership. Um, the people at the top or who are just even managing teams, a lot has fallen on them. Um, and so it's one important to them that they recognize well-being as being critical um, to the functioning of their teams, um, but also that they're paying attention to their own needs um, as we move forward. You know, and we also recognize is that we needed platforms that were available in the medical center across the university um, to provide the opportunity for people to share stories, to model self-disclosures of the challenges they were facing, and to provide opportunities to share coping strategies with each other. Um, this led to uh, panels that we conducted on COVID fatigue, um, as we both mentioned, experiences of racial and just social injustice related stress at work and upcoming ones on anxiety about returning to in-person work, be it hybrid or full-time. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, our, our most recent edition is about the stress related to bringing people back and managing people's related anxieties and concerns about a variety of things, such as handling child and elder care, uh, having to use mass transportation, and conditions related to risk of contagion in, in the workplace environment itself. And also, you know, interestingly, or maybe not, not surprising, we're seeing divergent feelings and preferences regarding um, whether people want to be back in the workplace. Some people are missing it. Some people are craving it and want to be there. Some people want to be there full time. Others want to be part time versus others who are reluctant or resistant to, to being back in their offices for, for the reasons I just mentioned. Um, the other thing we recognize, of course, is the power of peer support. Uh, sharing, and, and, and Claude mentioned this a few times, sharing and normalizing the range of emotional responses, and also sharing of coping strategies. We find that there's a lot of excellent group sharing and problem solving that occurs organically, it occurs naturally in these group meetings. Um, so that's been, that's been rewarding to witness and see, and it, it, we, we'd like to facilitate that, that kind of process. Bob, you are a psychologist with expertise in HIV and the biobehavioral impact of HIV. Is there anything specific to working with HIV clients that's come up through your COPE Columbia work with staff that people might want to know about? Again, thank you for asking that, Mariana. You know, um, and as I said, look, there are co the commonalities in, in the appearance in early days of both pandemics that, that we discussed earlier. Um, and it's very important that we address head on the realities of real world healthcare disparities um, and the mistrust of medical systems and some of the providers in those systems, um, particularly in communities of color that are harder hit and carry the highest burden in both of these pandemics. I think it took us a while in HIV to understand the strong relevance of, of this kind of medical mistrust or skepticism in the HIV pandemic. Um, and how this contributed to lack of care seeking, accessing treatment and prevention and adhering to treatments and prevention. We're and so those lessons, we're seeing now how important it is to acknowledge and address these things in the context of COVID. Um, the, the value of engaging voices from the community to bring about greater trust, for example, and util utilization of the COVID vaccines. 
and we still have a long way to go in, in, in certain settings, but the, we, the recognition that this is important is, is what was learned and we know that we still have more work to do. There's been a lot of discussion, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic about the upsides and downsides of engaging with people virtually. Do you have any thoughts about which kinds of difficulties are just, you know, too challenging to discuss virtually, or is it more about personal preferences? I, I think that's a really great question. And I think that's one we're all still grappling with and, and learning about um, as we go forward. I think there was a lot of interest in telehealth before COVID, but COVID really allowed um, I would say this technology to really flourish and, and for us to learn about its strengths um, and then also challenges. So, you know, for us, I think it's really led to increased participation by people um, in some of these town halls and webinars and peer support groups. Um, people don't have to travel, right? And they, and they can be right there and they can juggle their time a little bit more effectively. Um, and it, it's also, I think, um, provided some safety for some people, right? They're behind a screen. Um, they can use the chat function. You know, they don't have to have their face shown. They don't have to talk, but they can still hear and benefit and participate. Um, and so those are all pluses. Um, and I think, um, you know, I think we're hearing, uh, for sure that, that for reaching some populations, it's been a lot easier um, to do it virtually. Um, that said, there's also a downside of telehealth. It can feel less personal. It's often really hard to read the room. You know, if you're running a group or, or even individually, people turn off their screens, they may not be talking. Um, it's, it's hard to also provide other things like the warmth that come from being with somebody in person and, and to create that feeling of community. Uh, so I think, you know, this hasn't been, it's all good or it's all bad, but I, I thought, Bob, maybe you could also talk about the impact of telehealth and your practice. Yeah, no, I, you know, and you covered that really well, Claude. Um, you know, it's, I think, to say it in kind of a summary form, you know, there are upsides and downsides to telehealth, you know, and, and Claude really pointed out that the upside, and we have seen, you know, people having greater access to care and services because of the convenience of telehealth, but it doesn't work for, add that well for everyone necessarily. Um, you know, as Claude mentioned, the lack of, of sort of more personal contact and, and body, reading body language, not just one's face, but entire body language is important, particularly in settings where you're conducting things like psychotherapy. Um, but the other thing we've seen is that for some people, it's not very easy for them to engage in telehealth. Um, there may be a lack of privacy. They may not have the right technology or even a place to privately talk. I've run into that often, um, working with families or couples or individuals where like trying to set up a meeting and say, well, you know, I don't have privacy or I can't be alone and I don't know where I can do this. I can go sit in my car or I can be out in the street, but then it's noisy, you know, those kinds of things. So I think the bottom line to say is, and, and we're, some of us are trying to study this and learn more and more, um, Moving forward, there are a lot of advantages, but we have to be mindful of the settings and for the people with, for which this doesn't work well. Um, again, one size not fitting all and, and, and more lessons to be learned. 
So if an organization wanted to start a program like Cope Columbia from scratch right now, what would need to be in place for them to get it off the ground? Yeah, I think um, there are two things that come to my mind. You know, I think the first is that you need buy-in from leadership and you need leaders who, who really um, appreciate the value of um, employees, faculty, staff, healthcare provider well-being, um, but also who are willing to model and put into place things that are helpful, right? Uh, so leadership who um, not just encourage people, for example, to take vacations or to take breaks, but their own need for that or um, who might start every meeting, for example, um, with a mindful minute, you know, which is just giving people the chance to um, disengage from what they were just doing and, and doing something in the present. And then really is doing things like checking in um, and, and um, has the capacity for reflective listening to just really listen to what people are experiencing and give value to those experiences. And so I think what I'm saying is we really need investment in uh, emotional well-being. You know, we do a lot of investing in physical well-being. You know, you have to have physicals and, and you have to prove that you're you know, physically healthy to come to work, but we need to put that same investment into the emotional well-being because that's really what helps people to thrive and flourish. Yeah, I mean, that's so well said, Claude, you know, and, and what goes with that investment, of course, are resources, you know, resources actually to cover people's time um, to pay attention to these things. Um, you know, what we, and what we accomplished in, in Cope Columbia in the first six months is, you know, Everyone rallied, right? This was an important thing, taking care of each other. But that's not sustainable without dedicated resources over the long term. And, and that could be financial, but also, you know, financially be able to support people's time to be able to do this or to free them up from other responsibilities to provide the kind of services that were provided in Cope Columbia. Um, and, you know, to emphasize some of what Claude said, healthcare providers um, will need not just permission but other things to help them engage in self-care and prioritizing self-care. For example, um, time off and flexible schedules. Um, it needs to be more ingrained into the culture. And by that, I mean both our work and personal at home culture, the worlds we live in at work and at home. Um, the notion that psychological self-care is important and needs ongoing attention. You know, as Claude mentioned, prioritizing mental health as much as physical health. You know, and to exaggerate the point, I think self-care, self-psychology, psychological care should be seen as important as our daily need for food and water to survive and live in the world and, and for overall well-being. So if folks want to learn more about Cope Columbia, where can they find additional information? Um, thanks for giving us um, the opportunity to give that. We have a website. If you actually Google Cope Columbia one word, you will find us. Um, but you know the website is www.cuimc.columbia.edu/covid-19-resources-cuimc/cope-columbia. I know that's a mouthful, um, and uh, but I think if you Google Cope Columbia at CUIMC, you will find it, and and we have a number of resources there that describe the program. Claude, Bob, thank you so much for joining us today and telling us all about Cope Columbia and the work you're doing for folks dealing with the ups and downs of the COVID-19 pandemic. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AATC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, 
visit us at www.nikaatc.org. That's www.nikaatc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaatc.org. Stay safe and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.